Hello and welcome to a special Christmas edition of Powerhouse Politics. I am ABC News political director Rick Klein. And as this tumultuous year in politics comes to a close, we're going to go ahead and look at 2020 and what that might bring. Uh, We promised you last week that John Carl would sing Christmas carols. He's gotten out of that responsibility, uh, unfortunately. But fortunately for us, we have our good friend, uh, ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. He's uh, talking to a couple of our other good friends, a roundtable discussion that will include um, Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks, uh, our partners over at 538, Galen Druk and Claire Malone. So, Mr. Katursky, take it away. When we last left impeachment, the American public was evenly split, gearing up for a Senate trial and an all but certain acquittal for President Trump. Where's the public stand on this whole question? It's an interesting period of public opinion because I think um, a slim majority of Americans thinks that there was, you know, there's wrongdoing. You know, you go back to earlier impeachment polls and there was a lot of there was a decent amount of support for opening an impeachment inquiry, though not necessarily impeaching and removing Trump from office. So I think what you can take from those numbers and, and, and you know, the idea that he'll be impeached in the House but likely acquitted in the Senate is that um, voters, particularly in an election year, take the idea of impeachment very seriously. And I do think they are um, conflicted morally, ethically, however you want to say it, politically, um, about the virtues of removing a president from office or the virtues of having this essentially whole saga play out. Um, But so so it's kind of a I think we're seeing a lot of um, mixed feelings from the American public about a pretty big undertaking, in part because you know, while it was a couple decades ago, the Clinton impeachments, I think, do loom large over over people's memories. And that was um, in many ways the beginning of a real sort of hardcore partisanship in American political life. And that hardcore partisanship, Galen, is really reflected in the numbers that we had seen toward the end of the year about how the public feels about impeachment. Yeah. So when it comes to impeaching and removing the president and kind of the removing part is the part that we're focusing on now, there is still slightly more support for removal than not, you know, roughly two points, although it's been basically steady since the beginning of the process when there was a big shift in terms of Americans favoring impeachment or impeachment and removal over what had previously been maybe a third or 40 percent of Americans supporting that. So there was a shift early on, and then the polls have been relatively steady since. But when it comes to the facts of the matter, whether or not Americans think that the president did something wrong, there's pretty much a consensus somewhere between uh, 55 and 70 percent of Americans will say that the president did something unethical or did something wrong. So it's really what Claire mentioned here, that there is some conflicted views amongst the American public, where on one hand, a lot of Americans do think that what happened was not perfect, as the president would describe it. On the other hand, do they want to remove the president? That seems like an awfully big undertaking, as you said, in, in a democracy. And Mary Alice, is the public really prepared for this Senate trial? So many of us remember the Clinton impeachment trial. Uh, so many don't. I mean, is there is there any way the public can be prepared for what's about to unfold and, and just how ugly it, it may well get? No, I don't think so. And I don't think that the Clinton impeachment is necessarily the right model. This is a historic event that we don't have enough examples to predict what the next one's going to look like. It's rare and And this president is so unique. He is a bombastic street fighter that has said he wants this to be a bloodbath. He wants to go to the mat. And I'm not sure that Senate Republicans are remotely interested in that. I think they'd like to tie this up as soon as possible. But 
He wants to draw blood and make Democrats pay for this. And if he gets his way, it could be a very nasty, ugly, bitter fight there in the Senate. But I think it's important to take stock for just a moment on those numbers that we were talking about. It is remarkable that one in two, at least, if not a little bit more, every other American has been ready to remove this president. Ahead of the election, in an election year, months away from an election, they're saying what he did was too much and went too far. And that does not bode well, even for this president, even if he's acquitted, as we all expect, even if there are not any breaks in the Republican ranks there in the Senate. You have half a dozen senators that are up for re-election. You have an election coming. And to have such a big percentage of the country saying they are not comfortable with him sitting in office, it's just not how you want to be starting off a re-election campaign if you're the president. And, and yet, Claire, as you look at, at you know some of the numbers, the support for the president in other corners seems to be fairly consistent. Sure. I mean, there's some interesting polling that has been done in – um, about five or six swing states um, where, you know, people are less enthused about removing the president from office or impeaching the president or thinking that he did something wrong. And obviously, we don't have a popular vote system in the United States. We go by the Electoral College. So whether people like it or not, there are certain states which are more important than others when it comes to vote count. Um, and so I do think that the president, you know, it's not a great thing to be impeached um, the year that you're going up for uh, re-election. I'm not making that argument. But I do think that the, the president probably does have um, certain structural advantages in, in the Electoral College right now. And he, you know, I think there are certain states, you know, let's say the upper Midwest, uh, Wisconsin, um, you know, he, where he's where he's uh, he's not all that disliked by people or people don't necessarily think he should be removed from office. So I think that's a thing we, we keep in mind, too. Right. Which is just as Mary Alice said, an, an incredible number of Americans think that he should be removed from office. But then you 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 winnow it down to a subset of Americans whose whose votes perhaps count a little more than others, and they're they're not as convinced. But Galen, if the president turns the Senate impeachment trial into a, a reality show starring him and produced by him and controlled by him, is that going to play well beyond his core supporters? You know, probably not a lot of things that the president has done have not played particularly well beyond his core supporters, which is evident by the fact that his approval has remained pretty steadily underwater by about 12 points, even with such a good economy. The fact that, you know, a solid majority of Americans, we're talking about approval rating now, not favor of impeachment. The fact that a solid majority of Americans do not approve of the job of the president and have not for a long time shows that maybe that kind of strategy doesn't work beyond his core supporters. But I think it's important to note that there's a good chance that the president won't be allowed to turn the Senate into that kind of a circus because you have vulnerable senators there who are the senators who provide the Republicans with a majority who are looking out for their own reelection uh, prospects, people like Cory Gardner, uh, people like Susan Collins in Maine, and then you have other senators like Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski who are not up for election, but who are also not interested in playing that kind of partisan game necessarily. And so without, you know, those players on the Republican team of on Trump's team of trying to turn it into something of a circus, they simply will not be able to call the witnesses that Trump might want them to, like Bo Biden or Joe Biden um, or even Adam Schiff, for example. So, you know, 
it's not going to be an all-out partisan circus, I don't think. Mary Alice, is there any way that the outcome is anything other than we think it's going to be? Oh, sure. Uh, has Have Washington pundits been wrong before? Yeah. Uh, I think that the point Galen was making about how many Republicans are vulnerable and up for re-election is something that shouldn't be taken lightly. We have seen Cory Gardner break with this president in this White House in the past. We have seen Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins do it, too. Um, if there are new witnesses, new evidence, or if he continues to brazenly talk openly about wanting help from foreign governments to look into the Bidens. We have no idea how those Republicans will react. Who's going to win the Democratic primary? (laughs) Aaron, ask me tomorrow and I'll give you a different answer and then just play which one I was right. So that either way, I said something that looked smart. (laughs) I have absolutely no idea. And neither does anyone else. It has been remarkable to watch such a crowded field stay crowded. For so long, we have seen it winnow, but we've seen the top tier uh, stay evenly divided. It was remarkable through all of last year to watch the former vice president have such staying power. There were a number of gaffes, a number of tough moments on the debate stage. And yet he was at the top of the polls. He seems to have rock solid support in the deep south, in a lot of African-American communities. People like his brand. They trust his brand. So he still goes into this year with a lot of power, according to all those those polls from the end of last year. I would argue that Mayor Pete Buttigieg probably has the most to prove in Iowa, uh, largely because he doesn't have a natural next state that he should win. And because he is young and he is inexperienced. He is from a teeny town in the middle of the country. And so if he can't show that he actually can win and deliver, I think some of his support might erode pretty quickly. Claire, who's going to win? <laughs> One of four to five candidates. I <laughs> am. <laughs> oh, yeah? Bold. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. No, what I do think is interesting is um, you see the top tier. I would put it as Biden, Warren, Sanders, and Buttigieg. Um, it's divided between what I think the kind of the split in the Democratic Party is right now, which is between the moderates, that would be Biden and Buttigieg, and the more progressive, you know, uh, let's let's push the far, the party to the left candidates and Sanders and Warren. Um, and I do think, you know, what's interesting about Biden is he's a he's maintained for all the, the problems that people see in him as a candidate, his age, his stumbling with words and maybe sort of how best to talk about race. Um, his campaign has remained remarkably strong. It's remained remarkably strong with African-Americans. The poll numbers have been pretty steady throughout his entire time. And um, you have seen Buttigieg, a moderate, rise in the first couple of states. Now he has a little bit of a problem because he doesn't have a great core support with black voters or minority voters. And that's obviously needed to win the rest of the states you know, that come after Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, so I truly don't know, but I do see the, the, the big ideological splits in the party really happening. I do see you know, the idea that a lot of Democrats took stock after the 2016 election and thought, Maybe Bernie Sanders wasn't such a bad idea or maybe, you know, Elizabeth Warren as a kind of wonkier, more establishment friendly version of the Bernie Sanders left ideology. Maybe that's not such a bad idea. So it's been it has been fascinating to cover. And I mean, some of this is me covering, you know, I don't know what to say, but there is a true race going on, which is fascinating. So, Galen, what moves the needle and what moves the poll position? Iowa and New Hampshire. 
So the reason that part of the reason that this race is such an unknown at this point is because it's an unknown in those early states. You know, the leader of the primary has not really changed all that much throughout all of 2019. It's been Joe Biden. It still is Joe Biden. But he's not doing particularly well in Iowa or New Hampshire. And we know from history that winning the Iowa caucuses and then perhaps going on to win in New Hampshire can shake up the race quite a bit. Part of the reason that those two states can kind of throw a curveball into the mix is that Iowa and New Hampshire are very white states. And Joe Biden gets a lot of his support from black and Hispanic voters, which are more present in Nevada and South Carolina, the third and fourth states. And so if Joe Biden does not perform well in Iowa and maybe even somebody else wins both Iowa and New Hampshire. A real bad scenario for Biden would be if the same person, not Biden, wins both Iowa and New Hampshire. That person might be able to create enough momentum for themselves that they'll be able to go on and win the primary from there. So those two states are a big part of the reason that this race is such so up in the air at this point. But Mary Alice, couldn't we have the four early states and four different winners? Absolutely. And then you have Super Tuesday where almost half, not quite half, uh, more than a third, less than a half of all delegates up in this entire race are are up for grabs on that one night. Super Tuesday is super, super this year. And a lot of candidates have been trying to structure their campaigns in a different way to take advantage of that. I'm thinking of the fact that at the end of last year, Bernie Sanders was bragging about the fact that he had nearly 80 full-time campaign staff in California. That's really unheard of. People don't normally run sort of uh, real estate level politics in such a big state. But there are so many Democratic delegates up on Super Tuesday that that could change the whole race, too. Does that clearly leave any room for Mike Bloomberg or some late entrant? I think um, Mike Bloomberg has quite a bit of money to run ads. But one thing that we've seen voters crave this cycle is a connection to the candidate, a history. I mean, Biden, I think you're seeing that, right? His callbacks constantly to the Obama connection. Elizabeth Warren has built a brand for a really long time of her progressivism and obviously Sanders has the 2016 kind of magic behind him. So I think Bloomberg does lack that kind of recognition outside of New York City. And frankly, his reputation in New York City is a little mixed given um, the legacy of, of stop and frisk, which is now even Bloomberg admits seen as basically racial profiling. So I, I don't necessarily see Bloomberg catching on for all his millions. You were an emphatic head shake, Galen. No, I mean, I think part of the theory of Bloomberg's case was that the front runner, Joe Biden, was not all that strong. And if there was an experienced, somewhat moderate Democrat alternative, that his supporters might jump ship. But that totally ignores who actually supports Joe Biden, which is non-college educated white voters and minority voters. And if you look at Mike Bloomberg's electoral history, he doesn't do well with either of those groups. And there's no reason to expect that they would jump ship from Biden to support him. And we also know that you in a race like this, sometimes in the press, we overemphasize how much ad buys can actually make a difference in the race. So at a certain point, it's kind of a wash. Yes, you can spend $100 million, but how many people are you really convincing? All right, we're going to take a quick break right here and more with our political roundtable after this. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics Christmas Day Edition. We're going to throw things back to ABC's Aaron Katursky and the Powerhouse Roundtable as we look ahead to 2020. As we look into our 2020 crystal ball, Galen, is President Trump reelected? Oh, wow. 
if we elected presidents according to the popular vote in this country, it would look pretty bad for the president at this point. And that's because nationally, his approval is underwater by 12 points. And in any kind of conventional scenario, you would not expect somebody who's underwater by 12 points to win re-election unless there's some kind of third-party candidate who's super popular or the opposing party runs an extremely unpopular candidate who can just kind of match you and a bunch of people don't show up to the polls. But as Claire was mentioning earlier, the reason that we expect this to be more competitive than national approval numbers would show us is that the tipping point states, the states that will decide the Electoral College, are places like Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania that have a very different political landscape from the country writ large. And so, you know, all eyes are going to be on those battleground states, on those tipping point states this year to try to figure out what the president's odds are. Claire? Um, I guess I would say uh, all of the things Galen just said, but also, you know, I mean, um, incumbent incumbent presidents do traditionally have some sort of advantage, right? You know, there's the idea that you have the full office of the presidency, the power. I mean, Trump has the, um, I think, unique ability to wrangle cover, you know, cable coverage. It was called earned, you know, earned media, where people would just people wanted to uh, point their TV cameras at his rallies because they're interesting and um, wild and sometimes odd, and you know, it's a spectacle to behold. Um, so I will say that, you know, the president does presidents do tend to have some advantage there. Um, so I, I don't think we can forget that, though. I do think it will be a more competitive election than than that historical advantage might. Mary Alice, what's what's your wild card? The policies that were left on the table. I think that if Democrats are able to exploit the fact that the president promised to see to, to, to propose a new health care plan, but if he doesn't, if they are able to exploit the fact that he said he was going to do something, anything on gun safety reform, and he still doesn't, um, if they're able to make a big campaign on some economic issue around minimum wage or or workers' protections, and it could change in, uh, the perception that his own base has about him with some of those um, more just more more family-oriented issues, then I think that could move the needle. Uh, but I think the other two are totally right. We are, we are primed for a scenario where the president could lose the popular vote by even more than he did in 2016, but still keep the Electoral College incredibly competitive. The one other caveat I would say, though, is that in 2018, we saw huge mobilization from Democrats in some of those battleground states, like Pennsylvania and Michigan. Uh, and so... It, if that Democrat sort of ground game has legs and momentum, then maybe they're going to give the president a run for his money. Want to jump in? Yeah, I think it's also important to ask what kind of campaign the president will run. In terms of 2018, which Mary Alice just mentioned, even though the economy was doing well then, as it is doing now, the president ran on immigration and talking about the caravans that were headed towards the southern border. And a lot of Republican strategists were kind of looking at each other like, well, why is this the president's strategy instead of just talking about jobs, unemployment, the GDP, you know, what the Americans tax burden is now after the tax cuts, etc. So, you know, it's an open question how much campaigns actually matter. A lot of Americans have already made up their mind. But is the president going to choose to run on what is 
according to the numbers that we have, a strong economy? Or will he go down some of his kind of more favorite paths, which are more about kind of immigration or trade or things like that? More incendiary. Mm-hmm. Mm. Claire, what kind of campaign will the Democrats run then? How do you counter? They've learned a thing or two, perhaps. How do you counter Donald Trump? Well, I think it very much depends on who they end up choosing. Um if it's someone like Joe Biden, I mean, Joe Biden has been running what a lot of people have called a general election campaign for most of the primary, which is he, you know, is started airing TV ads that are about America's potential loss of stature in the world because of Donald Trump. So so I think someone like Biden would use his experience, the fact that he's held a White House, a high White House post in the vice presidency and has, you know, been a, a president's intermediary for foreign leaders. And he would say, um, Trump, even though he's president, sort of pales in comparison to the sort of stature I would bring to the job. Um, and I, I think, you know, it, for a Warren or a Sanders, I think you would see a much more probably um, a campaign about um, the middle class and the the economic disparity, the idea that the Republicans are, you know, enriching themselves while the middle class, you know, gets a hard break on health care and, tax, and taxes. So I think those are a little bit different. I think Biden would probably run a much more, um, you know, nose to nose with Trump kind of campaign. Mary Alice, what's your dream matchup in 2020? People are going to be talking about this for the next year. Uh, who would who would get under the president's skin? And would that be helpful for Democrats? Is it is a angry President Trump, someone that's more beatable? Or is that what his base likes to see? You know, Bloomberg's interesting if it was two New Yorkers going head to head. Is that fascinating? Or is that a sign that um, that the rest of the country is getting left behind? You know, Bernie Sanders likes to say that he can play in parts of the country that other Democrats can't. And he could give the president a run in, in places like Kansas and Kentucky. Um, other Democrats say that's a joke. Uh, so who knows? I, I think that someone like Elizabeth Warren will will have to show that she's going to be a different kind of female candidate than Hillary Clinton was. We've seen the president respond to a female candidate in the past and times where where he really took big hits for and, and faced serious allegations for coming across pretty sexist in some of his comments. Does he get away with that again if he's facing a woman? And that does it for this special Christmas edition of Powerhouse Politics. I want to thank our partners at 538, Galen Druk and Claire Malone. Thanks also to ABC News Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks, as well as ABC's Aaron Katursky. Uh, for John Carl, Trevor Hastings, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, and the whole gang here at, at Powerhouse Politics, a very Merry Christmas, a very happy holidays to all. We'll be back with you next week. <laughs> 